Chat said, just had one kid in that video really excited to see the clip on here. Good Thank morning, you. Tennessee Valley, and you oh, are tuned man. in to what, pop- is, what is going on there? Okay. I think we got a little bit of WVNN mm. patching through there. The- yeah, I gotta get rid of that. No thanks. No thank you. Uh, so yeah, uh, Sherry in the Facebook chat said, just had one kid in that video really excited to see that clip on here. Thank you guys for supporting the miners on strike. Uh, and we are glad to see, so maybe we should, even though the FCC censors, maybe we should continue to keep the show family friendly if we've got children watching. Um, but, <laughs> but, but Sherry, if he would like or she would like to call in, the phone line is open. Love to hear about uh, their experience meeting Tom Morello. The phone number yeah. is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Or send us a text. Or send us a text. Yeah. Either way, would love to hear from them. So, uh, Adam, while we wait on that potentially to happen, uh, talk to us about what's been going on in Washington uh, Washington State the yeah. last few weeks. Yeah, a lot happening with educators out in Washington State and Pacific Northwest. Normally we stick to the South, but uh, with so many labor actions happening in Washington schools, wanted to give a, a brief update. Let's start with the big one first, which is uh, in Seattle. School did not start on time in Seattle this year. And the reason why is because 6,000 unionized educators with the Seattle Education Association went on strike Wednesday, September 7th. Uh, The Seattle Education Association held their strike vote that Tuesday before on the 6th. And with over three-fourths of the membership participating, Seattle educators voted 95% to authorize a strike. Right. So this wasn't just uh, a fluke thing. 95% to 5% to authorize this strike. Seattle educators went on strike for the kind of contract they deserve, which includes important resources for their students, such as improved mental health supports and improved staffing ratios for multilingual and special needs students. Uh, They were also fighting for safer schools, uh, specifically with improved air quality measures. Listeners may recall that we actually interviewed a local parent from Madison, Alabama, Mike Bailey, uh, indoor air care quality uh, advocate, and he shared with us some of the really astounding research on how upgraded HVAC systems and proper HEPA filtration systems can dramatically cut the cases of COVID and the flu and other illnesses. So... 
you saw the Seattle educators were fighting for their students in, you know, multiple different ways and different avenues. Of course, pay is always an issue and especially an issue in such a time of inflation that we have right now. And in a city like Seattle, where housing costs have grown astronomically, uh, they're growing everywhere, but particularly in uh, some of these big cities out west, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to be a rank-and-file teacher and to be able to afford to live in a city like Seattle. So the Seattle Education Association has reached a tentative agreement, and they did vote to open the schools this week while they review the TA. Voting on the proposed contract is scheduled for Monday. So we'll stay tuned. We'll see what happens there. Um, it looked like they were pretty successful uh, in some of their gains that they were fighting for in this contract. Um, you know, they got a lot of public support as well. Uh, read some posts uh, from some Seattle teachers talking about the central office, uh, you know, suits from the central office going around to picket lines and taping them, recording them, counting how many people were there. Just some real, you know, petty kind of tactics happening. And that seems to be a theme here. Um, of course, we know that one of the, the most important reasons why workers go on strike, almost always respect shows up uh, right alongside pay and benefits and working conditions. Just, just basic respect. And that was an issue here as well. Um, and Seattle's not the only place. Uh, in nearby Kent, Washington, educators there were on strike for a week, and they were able to successfully secure uh, improved pay and staffing ratios in their new contract. Uh, meanwhile, a couple hours away from Seattle, teachers in the small town of Ridgefield are currently on strike. So it's not just the big urban areas that are seeing these kind of work stoppages. Uh, and I wanted to bring that up as well because, you know, it's easy if, if you're listening in you know, Decatur, Alabama, or Athens, Alabama, Scottsboro, Alabama, you know, a place like Seattle, Washington, or Chicago, Illinois, seems pretty foreign. Uh, but it's not just the big metro areas that are seeing this kind of organizing. Teachers in these smaller rural school districts are going on strike as well. And in Ridgefield, the only reason I even really know much about that, that situation is a couple of my old NSO brothers are out there involved in that strike. So shout out to uh, Jed R Riviera. Uh, I believe he's been serving as a strike captain. And uh, attorney Mike Boyer, longtime legendary uh, labor lawyer in the Pacific Northwest. He's also the vice president for defense of the National Staff Organization. I know he has been out there involved in negotiations. Um, it, it's been pretty cool to see the amount of parent support that they've had. Uh, I just want to, you know, refer to a couple of uh, testimonies I've seen uh, just this week. I believe perhaps yesterday, it, maybe yesterday to close out the school week, parents rallied at the central office uh, to support their teachers. The district would not let them in the door. So they were banging on the door trying to get in, uh, just trying to speak to the school board and, and ask for a fair contract for the educators serving their students. Uh, apparently, there was a lone counter protester who tried to show up and, and shout at the parents and the teachers, but the longshoremen showed up on behalf of the teachers. Uh, and apparently it didn't take much of a conversation there for that one protester, counter protester to uh, go on home. 
didn't want to tangle with the longshoremen. <laughs> and I, I got to say, I love that too. The longshoremen showing up for the teachers and the parents. That is awesome. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been interesting to see, you know, the Seattle strike has obviously gotten more news attention, uh, but these little ones can be, you know, can be nasty sometimes. Um, I, I gotta say from Mike Boyer, um, he has emphasized that they are ready for a contract. The REA Richfield Education Association, they are, I mean, they're really, they're ready for the strike to be over. They're ready to settle this. They're ready to have a fair contract. Uh, but the school district is just dragging their feet, just really dragging their feet. You know, they've got a private attorney there. Who knows what what motivations might be in play? Um, I, I will say that it's it would not be the first time that an attorney slow walked a process from a school district just to uh, crank up those billable hours. I may have seen that a time or three. So shout out to the Ridgefield educators in Washington, the educators in Kent, Washington, educators in Seattle for fighting, not just for their own pay, their own benefits, their own respect, but for the resources and learning conditions of their students. And I think that's just huge that they are making some real gains when it comes to special education, um, English as a second language students, uh, some of the most vulnerable kids in our public schools. And they, they deserve to have the staff and the resources they need to be successful in the classroom. And it's a shame that, you know, teachers have to go on strike to get that. Uh, no worker goes on strike lightly. But I think when it comes to the care-based professions, such as teachers and, and nurses, uh, it's a more, even more of a, a, a serious decision to make, right? Nurses don't mm -hmm. want to leave their patients Teachers don't want to leave their students. Um, so that's never a decision they take lightly. For it to get to that point is really an indictment of the school district to let it get to that point. Um, and of course, you'll see the usual talking points saying that the teachers were hurting the kids, um, you know, hurting the community by keeping the schools closed. But it's simple. Settle. Settle right. with the teachers, sign a fair contract, pay them what they deserve, pay to have the staff that the kids deserve, and that you're obligated to provide under federal law, by the way, IDEA and Section 504. Um, that It's not that hard. It's really not that hard. School districts sometimes overcomplicate these things, uh, you know, financially... Uh, interested attorneys sometimes overcomplicate <laughs> over these things, uh, but it's not that hard. Teachers want to be able to teach. They want to feel good about what they do. They want to know that they have the resources available to do their job effectively, because if they can do their job effectively, the students and the parents and the community are the ones who benefit from that, not them, right? Uh, they don't get a pay raise by having extra special education aids in their classroom. Right. You know, if there's additional uh, multilingual teachers hired in the school, that's not going to up their retirement pension. But it is going to allow them to do their job more effectively, and it's going to make sure that those kids get the services that they really deserve and that they are obligated to provide. So shout out to all those educators in the state of Washington for fighting for what's right. If you are an educator in Alabama and you're listening to this, 
you know, I know it's easy to to think of a thousand reasons why it can't happen here. Mm-hmm. You're too busy. You're overworked. It's too conservative. The AEA is too weak. Um, people are too apathetic. People are too divided. It's, I mean, we can go on and on, and it's easy to have those those reasons in your head, and, and that's not to de- detract from the validity of those. Uh, but I can tell you that educators currently and previously have organized in conditions as bad or worse uh, and have done so successfully and have really been able to secure victories for themselves and for their students through the power of collective action and organizing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Really great stuff coming out of the Pacific Northwest. Um, So we're going to have a pretty Starbucks heavy next few segments. And, And the first off, I wanted to to kick this off with maybe something a, a little bit a little bit light, a little bit fun. Um, and that is a couple of weeks ago, Ted Cruz commented on the student loan forgiveness and was absolutely and rightfully dragged. Um, and he had a response to that, to his dragging. But first, I want to play his initial comments for those that might not have heard them because it's a doozy. So let's play that. And and I'll say in fairness, I have not heard them. Adam uh, has not heard them. I, I try to Adam's avoid not... all things Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm I'm uh, the old guy who doesn't get on the internet as much. So I'm wisely I'm, not on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'm crazy enough as it is, so I don't want right, to add right. that into the mix. But let's see what old Ted Cruz has to say. Oh, oh look, look that there, there is, is a real, real risk, risk if, if if you are that that slacker barista who 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 wasted seven years in college studying completely useless things now has loans and can't get a job joe biden just gave you 20 grand like holy cow 20 grand that you know maybe you weren't going to vote in november and suddenly you just got 20 grand and you know if you can you know get off the bong for a minute and and, and head down to the voting station uh, or just send in your mail-in uh, ballot that the democrats have helpfully sent you wow Really, slacker baristas get off the bong for the bong, yeah. Uh, Oh, and also the studying useless things for seven years. They they love that trope. Yeah, which is totally unrepresentative. Useless things like critical thinking, reading, writing, researching. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, even uh, even taking him at face value, like let's say, like that we don't think that literature is a valuable thing. The the percentage of student loans that are taken up by the liberal arts right. is minuscule. How many people are there that actually fit this stereotype he's describing? I know a guy who has a math degree from UAH, a, the same degree that I do. I've got a math degree. I My degree is in math. And there's a guy there who, who he's got a degree now. He has a hundred thousand dollars in student debt getting a math degree from uah mm. i mean the average debt is over thirty thousand for the average student right just right um you know and and there's all these students out there who for various reasons were unable to complete their degree they were forced to drop out because they had to work they had to take care of family you know they got pregnant Whatever the situation may be, you've got 
a lot of folks out here who have the debt but don't even have the degree, right? And there's a whole conversation to be had about the ways in which college degrees were overemphasized, perhaps, and, and the so-called college premium uh, is not what it was made out to be. But, I mean, that's even worse when you have all the debt and you don't even have the, the chance of getting that college premium. Right. But, you know, Ted Cruz is just totally full of shit. Yeah, well, and, uh, this, and, and this look at this. stereotype, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's overplayed. It's so old. Um, and, well, look at this. What profession, and, and, you know, this is, I, I didn't, I didn't do as much prep for this, but, but I, I do know for a fact that the representativeness of his stereotype is, is not, it is not very representative of the reality. Um, and, and so, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't exactly right, but Google says, what profession has the most student debt? Registered nurses. Mm. Registered nurses are the career with the most student debt. Interesting. And, and, and a predominantly female profession. Right, right. And I know that, and, and, and my fiance uh, is not a registered nurse. She is going to, for clinical mental health, uh, but she's got something like, Thirty, forty thousand dollars in student debt, and uh, she <laughs> she's got a master's degree. She's got a master's degree, and she's going to be coming out uh, making uh, not very much money, like right. thirty-five, yeah. forty thousand dollars a year. And uh, she's not some like slacker barista. Like baristas are not slackers, and people who get degrees are not slackers. She's got she had a four in undergrad and has a 4.0 in grad school <laughs> get it for clinical mental health and she's got all this all this crazy amount of student debt and it's going to be difficult for her to pay it back right right yeah and i'm glad you said that about uh, baristas are not slackers because i would challenge ted cruz to survive survive a good 12-hour shift as a barista Go open and then close and see how you feel the next day. Because I, I don't think he could do it. I don't think he has. No, he couldn't. He doesn't do it. have that kind of hard work in him. Well, to do and the, that. the thing about the thing to me about service work that, uh, like I, I've said it a few times on the show, I was a server. I, I or I, I was a server. I was a you know an assistant manager and a cook, and I did everything in a restaurant that you could possibly do. I did it, um, besides tending a bar, and. I had recurring nightmares, not even that necessarily that, that, you know, um, my job was, was that hard. I felt confident in doing it, but just the go, 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 the stressful nature of it. I had recurring nightmares at that job. And now at my current job as a project manager, uh, you know, responsible for literally hundreds of millions of dollars in, in, in these big construction projects, uh, that, that, that I'm basically an administrator for, I have had in my position, all of one nightmare about my job, right? And, uh, you know, so the, but, but also in addition to the, the fast paced nature of it, the difficulty of the job, the humility of the thing, right? Cause you have to put up with so much abuse from yeah. the customers that, you know, they some, don't pay you extra to smile, right? Some fancy Harvard boy like Ted Cruz is not going to, you know, maybe he could, he could put a, maybe he is physically capable of the difficulty level of being a barista, but he could not 
the, he, he, he couldn't would, handle the public. He, he couldn't handle mm-hmm. the public. He would not be humble enough. Right. And that's that's the big thing is that you've got to put up with all of this nonsense from the public and and you've got to have a, a smile the whole time. Right. And then you're going to have politicians get on TV and talk about what a yeah. sorry sack of shit you are because of the type of job you have. Right. Right. Because of the way you have to pay your bills. Right. And you know what? This if there is such a person out there that he described, there is some slacker who can't get off the bong to go vote. I still want them to get debt forgiveness because it's the right thing to do. Right. But also, uh, you're going to find more slackers in management than you will on the shop floor. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. uh, William in the chat says, talk about slackers. What has Cancun Ted Cruz done in the Senate? That's a good question. Um, Bernie. He just just goes on TV and the radio a lot. He doesn't actually do anything for his constituents that's positive. you know, frankly, I don't think we want him to accomplish yeah, much right, because right, right. nothing he's going to accomplish is going to be positive yeah. for working people. But uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to hit him too much. I'm uh, about being a slacker. I am just fine right. with him. Uh, being yes, a slacker, actually, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. Be a slacker, uh, dude. <laughs> Ted Cruz, please just slack off until right. hopefully you can disappear. Yeah, Bernie put out a good response to that statement on his TikTok. Let's play that. All right. If you are that that slacker barista. at Temple and as part of our contract like our build up to our contract campaign we polled our members about their student debt because we're going to be demanding that the employer also offset the debt right and so 120 of our members had a total of seven million dollars wow. in nursing debt in student debt these are nurses you know, these nurses. are nurses and you, you have to have a, a college degree to be a nurse, and we're struggling in the hospital. Right. We need more nurses. Who who wasted seven years in college studying completely useless things, now has loans and can't get a job. Joe Biden just gave you 20 grand. I have like 80-something, $88,000 of debt. that's just increased year after year. They increased, that increased uh, yeah, the interest they're, rates? They're all federal loans. Yeah. Some of them have 6 7% interest. I mean, we put up buying a house. I'm in my 30s, put off buying a house, put off getting married for a while, don't know if we can have kids, because student debt is, I mean, it's just overwhelming. And now, as a union organizer, I'm explicitly excluded from the public service law forgiveness program. Mm. Like, holy cow, 20 grand, that, you know, maybe you weren't going to vote in November and suddenly you just got 20 grand and, you know, if you can, you know, get off the bong for a minute and, and, and head down to the voting station. Uh, or just send in your mail-in ballot that the Democrats have helpfully sent you. Um, It could drive up turnout, uh, particularly among young people. My uh, student loan payments every month are double my rent. uh, About $1,100. every month for student debt. And I refinance, yeah. What does that mean in terms of your financial situation in your life. I'm working two jobs now, and that's going to be my uh, future for a while. Hmm. Sounds like a bunch of slackers to me. Right, right. Why didn't they get their daddy to pay off their student loans? Yeah, there was a lot there. I mean, the nurses, uh, as we said, like a predominantly female profession. Mm-hmm. Um, the exclusion of union organizers from the public service, loan forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, that's another another one that I think is, you know, I didn't think it was that big of a deal until you mentioned 
you know, maybe last week or week before that people working for the Right to Work Foundation mm-hmm. can technically qualify for this program. Uh, and, you know, that got me thinking about how many just nonsense nonprofits exist out there. And those folks are going to be able to qualify for loan forgiveness. But people who decided to be staffers for the labor unions are excluded. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, again, that's a very minor subset of people. I recognize that. And, and some folks will say you're pretty privileged to be a union staffer. And in some ways you are. Uh, but more so, it just kind of goes to to the broader issues of how exclusionary things are in terms of relief um and just the the extent to which this is a major problem it's it's dragging down and at this point generations right not just a generation but multiple generations right 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 and so um we're going to play his response to this backlash but part of his response is going to be that oh i didn't mean every barista right of course And, and you know for one uh, like, what a loser to back off of what he said. Because obviously, if you go back and listen to what he said, oh, he sounded very cocky. It, it, he sounded cocky, and he obviously meant it to be slacker to be a representative adjective of the profession of baristas who have student debt. Like, uh, in a conversation about student debt. You are not going to bring up what you believe to be an unrepresentative uh, uh, faction of people who are going to be wrongfully benefiting from this. You're going to bring up the people that you believe are representative of the folks who are getting this student loan forgiveness. And and so he he's just totally to, totally backs off of it like uh you know like a little baby. I'm surprised he didn't bring up physical appearances, yeah. like, you know, tattoos and piercings and right. funky colored hair, right? Because um, I think that's also part of the stereotype and the trope is like, oh, mm-hmm. these are alternative type right. people. Yeah. You know, people that um, they wouldn't see at their uh, bougie evangelical church on Sunday. Right. Or at the uh, Alabama GOP fundraiser where you might run into uh, uh, Tim James. And Lindy Blanchard. And yeah, right. yeah. You know type of folks that wouldn't necessarily fit in there. Right. Yeah, so let's play his response to the backlash. Goodness. Yeah, it, it really was quite amazing. Uh, Bernie put out an official video responding to verdict. I love when, when this podcast drives the political news. Um, I will say also that, that, that and, and all of the Bernie bros, their heads exploded. I got to say, by the way, you knew that was going to happen because when we were doing the, the last episode and I, I talked about the, 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 the slackers who had wasted six years with getting a useless degree working as baristas might come out and vote if they can get off their bong long enough to do so. I saw in the register your eyes grow wide as you're like, oh, crap. But I also, all right, I want to I tap into your Yale education. Because yeah. there is a logical fallacy that these lefties are engaged in. When I said that some slackers are baristas, they translated that into all baristas are slackers. Are slackers, right? Which is does not. You, you know, I, I, maybe you could help me out with, with with deductive logic, but I'm pretty sure that second statement doesn't flow from the first. Are yeah. So. Um, 
Now, uh, the the good folks at Left Reckoning, Matt Leck and David Griscom, I would recommend uh, following them on YouTube. But they mentioned this. Um, it's super, super funny how these two Harvard-educated fancy boys are talking about um, the working class and who 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 is worthy of being called a slacker and who is not worthy of being called a slacker and, you know, talking about people who actually have to work for a living. Um, just very, very, very funny that and, and you know them ostensibly being on the side of of like the steel worker right he mentions later on in the program being you know i'm i'm sticking up for the steel worker in ohio or whatever or in texas and you know just very very funny that you've got two harvard educated or, or or ivy educated fancy boys talking about this um but yeah it, it, it's why would you why would you pretend that you don't have contempt for baristas when you right. so obviously do. Like we can, we can see the tape. We can see the tape. We can see the contempt that you've got for people who do a certain kind of job. Uh, and why hide from it? Why hide from it? Yeah, I mean, and it's like uh, the go-to insult of burger flipper. Right. That's another one that you hear a lot. Oh well, uh, we're really gonna pay burger flippers fifteen mm. an hour. Um, yeah, actually, we should. We should pay right. them that or more. Um, because there wouldn't be burger flippers if your ass wasn't buying burgers. Right. So, you know, there's a need there. And as long as we're in a capitalist economy, right, there's a marketplace. And these companies are trying to meet demand that they help create through advertising. But regardless, a demand. Um, and... The only reason these businesses exist and produce value is because of the labor that is involved. Uh, but you're right. I mean, Ted Cruz clearly has a contempt for baristas and for, uh, you know, working class folks, I believe. You know, they can hold up a stereotype. You know, you said he brought up steel workers. Right. And they want you to envision when they say worker, when Republicans talk about workers, they have a very specific subset in mind. They're talking about a white guy who, you know, has on a hard hat right. and goes to church and listens to people like Ted Cruz on the radio. That's their idea of a worker, uh, someone who's culturally conservative, and they want to play up the divisions within the working class. They want that hypothetical white steel worker to resent those funky looking baristas at mm. Starbucks that, you know, and, and that's so much of their politics is stoking cultural resentment among and within working class people, uh, because that's the only way they can really advance their agenda because there's only so many, you know, used car dealers and jet ski dealership owners, uh, and, right. uh, attorneys, that are out there, right? You can't win elections based solely on the country club membership. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and another reason that he said that people attacked him was was um uh well let, let's just let's play some of his thinking about why he was attacked for this. Let's 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 play that clip. Oh, is this the uh Yeah, I got you. There's a reason why the lefty Twitter mafia leapt on this so aggressively. 
which is today's Democratic Party hates working class people. Oh, wait. <laughs> so we Baristas don't count as working class people now. That's pretty interesting. That's pretty interesting. People leapt on his description of baristas as slackers because they hate working class people. Mm. And this is after he just finished saying like, oh, you know, not all baristas are, are yeah. slackers. You Man, know, he really leans working. into the contradictions. <laughs> yeah, and here he's saying, oh no, you're defending baristas because you actually hate working class people. So... Yeah, it is fascinating to see them, like, lean into the contradictions in this way. Um, you know, I mean, you don't even have to, like, be consistent about what you're trying to push because it doesn't It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's just, just it's pollution. It's like yeah. intellectual pollution that they just pump out into the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, like any pollution, you absorb some of that. Mm. Uh, and I guess they hope... The idea being that, you know, enough of that is absorbed in into people, into voters, and into the popular culture and consciousness um, that it taints opinions. And the fact that there is this stereotype he can riff on mm -hmm. proves that there is some success there. But uh, I think the goal for all of us is to unite working class people and to have these conversations where we make clear, hey, a barista is a worker. A steel worker is also a worker, right. and we have more in common with each other than any of us do with some joker like Ted Cruz. Of course. Are his donors that he works for. Right. Uh, continuing on talking about Starbucks, the United States House of Representatives Education and Labor Committee held a hearing last week on the barriers to organizing, and as I prepared this segment yesterday... I wish that I had. Uh, I wish that I'd started prepping it sooner because there was there was a lot of good stuff that that I would have liked to clip and play for y'all and, and dissect. And and so you know if you have the time, maybe you're doing dishes or going on a walk or something. Um, it's worth listening to, uh, albeit maybe at like 1.5 speed, <laughs> 1.75 speed. You know something like that. Maybe we can uh, tweet that out or, or put that out on our social media. Is there a, a a public link to the entire hearing. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, okay. it's on YouTube. Um, and and it's funny, it's uh, the House Education and Labor Committee put it up as a kids video. Interesting. Um, because I think that they don't understand. They you know they they don't understand YouTube. And so when when you're uploading a video, there is a section that says, "Is this made for kids?" And I think they probably interpreted that as. Is, is this appropriate right. for kids? And they said yes. And so then now it's like as a kid's video. Oh, okay. So my YouTube. daughter might can find it. Your daughter <laughs> can find it, yes. Um, but so what the, the Democrats set out to do with this hearing is to kind of go point by point through a lot of the issues that workers face as they're trying to organize like captive audience meetings, store closures, retaliation, intimidation, NLRB underfunding, contract negotiation delays. And so there's a lot of good stuff in the hearing. Um, they go back and forth between a Republican questioning and then a Democrat questioning. And so the Democrats had had a couple of guests. The Republicans had one guest who was like a boss representative, basically. Like I said, there was a lot of good stuff in the hearing, but the consistent standout was the only worker that was called on, Michelle Eisen. 
Um, they had, you know, the Democrats had some other people that, that were interesting to listen to. There was a former NLRB chair. There was like a professor, um, a tenured professor. But Michelle Eisen was by far the standout, um, most interesting. And I think uh, of the testimony that could possibly be compelling to working people, it would be Michelle's, um, as opposed to, you know, some of these other like experts or whatever. Um, so that might be worth Democrats considering as they think about guests to bring to the next hearing. Right. And like I said, of course, the Republicans had their own guest who said some very silly things, and the Republicans themselves said some pretty silly things, too. So let's start off with the ranking Republican on the committee. This is how Representative Fox opened the hearing. Despite Democrats' aggressive attempts to force union representation on workers, Republicans are committed to ensuring workers have the freedom to choose whether they want to join a union. I'd like to remind my colleagues that federal law already protects the right of employees to organize or to refrain from doing so. Any reforms to our labor laws should help workers and spur economic growth, not exclusively promote the interests of union bosses. There's a reason why the PRO Act cannot clear the Senate. It is a deeply unpopular bill that undermines basic, long-standing worker rights and would take a wrecking ball to Main Street. Republicans just want fair and neutral labor laws. Instead of working together to create a level playing field, Democrats want to pass a union wish list bill to build on what they claim is a historic surge in unionizing. You can't be neutral on a moving train, well, as the great Howard Zinn once said. You can't be neutral on a on a moving train, but also you heard there the idea that, you know, oh, there's already federal laws protecting organizing. Right, that are being uh, broken, hence the hearing, yeah. lady. And the Republicans just never acknowledge that throughout this whole, it's like three and a half hours. They never acknowledge and they go back to that talking point oh your rights are already protected oh your rights are already they never 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 and neither does their guest the representative of the bosses they never address that they never are able to say uh no actually you know what uh bosses are not breaking the law actually uh and we can point to this and this and this saying that workers rights are being protected in fact Whereas Michelle Eisen, the former NLRB chair, are able to point to specific things showing that the law is being broken, workers are being intimidated, right? And and you know actually making the case with with uh, uh, you know facts and logic, as as the kids would say, um, which you know it, it helps to. Uh, be telling the truth, I guess. Yeah, and she really <laughs> leans into that, like, choice. Right. They really lean into choice. And the thing is, um, when the other side is repeatedly breaking the law, a law that is already stacked in their favor, mm. I think, objectively. Right. Uh, so the, the playing field is already tilted towards the boss's direction. That's not good enough. Right. They violate it flagrantly because they know they can get away with it or because of the cost of the fines or, you know, the, the ULP they have to post up in the break room is, is minimal cost. 
uh, for what they stand to gain by crushing worker power. Right. Um, so it's not a it's not a free choice. Right. And uh, this is the guess that the Republicans got to come. He's some, I don't know, person on like an HR something or another, some big boss guy. Um, these were part of his opening remarks, and they were also representative of a theme that the Republicans and their guest hit on throughout the three and a half hours of the hearing. Adam, let's play that. Just on a personal note, my wife and I go to Starbucks stores all over the country. I think they're well run, they're clean, they're efficient. I like the Wi-Fi service, the coffee's great. And by the way, the internet service is great. So let's not publicly shame a company that's provided thousands and thousands of jobs in this country and has provided good community relations and has been a leader in benefits. That shouldn't happen. Second, on a general... All right, I'm going to stop it there just because um, <laughs> last I checked, Republicans were all too eager to criticize a company such as Starbucks for being mm. woke. Hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll press play now. Uh, other employers in this country seem to be publicly shamed uh, inappropriately. We have particularly new companies that are providing thousands and thousands of jobs in this country, good paying jobs. But the litmus test apparently is if they speak out at all on a different perspective of whether unionization makes sense at all, they are publicly shamed or criticized. Now that's wrong. They are, they are publicly shamed or criticized. Oh, God. That's wrong. Oh, no. It's wrong to criticize bosses if you disagree with them. Well, he does sound like an HR department guy, doesn't he? Um, that's kind of their mo. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, again, leaning into the contradictions. Like right. these are the exact same people who want you to be upset at Starbucks because right. uh, they're anti-Christmas, you mm. know, or something silly like that. Um, but God forbid you critique them for their labor practices for something that actually is real. Yeah, like <laughs> the closer you get to the material world. The farther away the Republicans want you to like to right. be, you know? Yeah. And and we're gonna close this segment with Michelle Eisen's opening remarks. And we're gonna play those in full because they are they're really good. And and like I mean, Eisen is really, really the standout of this hearing. No surprise there. If you caught her no. on our Unions 101 panel, she is a you know great. standout. Um so we're gonna close this segment with that. But uh, when we get to it, we're going to go through some other things first. But when we get to it, I want you to kind of think back to the, the opening remarks from the leading Republican on this committee and from their guest. And how silly, how silly they are, how devoid of substance they are mm -hmm. as you are listening to Michelle's testimony. Like, just, 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 just remember that. And, you know, maybe people will say, oh, you clipped it out of context. You weren't very, uh, you know, representative. I was totally representative of their side. Uh, I, I was definitely representative of their side. Absolutely. You can go back. I'm, I'm encouraging you to watch the full thing for, like, entertainment value, I think, from the Republican, uh, you know, for, for educational value from listening to the NLRB former chair and Michelle, and then for entertainment value for the Republican guest. But think back to this 
as you're listening to Michelle. But uh, so as we're winding through the committees, another one of the things that the bosses and the Republicans kept coming back to is that workers want to muzzle the bosses. Oh my God. Just listen to this exchange between a Republican congressperson and their guest here. Additionally, we have recently seen the NLRB under General Counsel Abruzzo discard decades of case law and NLRB precedent upholding an employer's right to educate its employees about unionization. Instead, the general counsel is arguing that it is an unfair labor practice for employers to require employees on paid work time to attend meetings where the employer expresses its opinion concerning unionization. Mr. King, do you think the general counsel's legal argument is sound? No. Mr. Wahlberg, nice to see you again, and you, you, you nailed it. Uh, this attempt to muzzle an employer from stating a position and, and I certainly would counsel an employer to say so in a co non-coercive, thoughtful uh, way, which virtually every employer does. But the attempt by this general counsel uh, is, in this area, a direct violation of Section 8C of the National Labor Relations Act, which is, a, which is the free speech provision. It's, it's an attempt not to have all uh, perspectives, all thoughts, all ideas regarding unionization out on the table for the worker to decide. So that's what they're doing. They're educating. Yeah. Now, last I checked, um, Republicans were very concerned that teachers might be indoctrinating and not educating. But um, when employers do it, when employers present only one side, when employers misrepresent facts, when employers coerce you into these meetings where they feed you propaganda, right. that's education. Right. But let a let a let some public school teacher try any of these tactics with their yeah. students and see what happens. And and unfortunately, none of the Democrats really, really attacked this line of argumentation. Um because I think for some people it might feel um, persuasive. Like, oh, why would you, why would you want the government to muzzle the boss? You know, you, even if you disagree with the bosses, why shouldn't they just have the opportunity to say what they want? What free speech, right? And that's not that's not what's going on. The government is not going in and saying that the boss cannot give their opinion to people on unionization or even right. to their co to their employees on unionization what this uh what this from the NLRB is trying to do is end the coercive captive audience meetings which are that uh, th these these captive audience meetings that take place during work time that sometimes you even have Starbucks locations closing their stores so that you have to come if you want to get paid for that shift that you were supposed to work that day you have to come to this meeting if you want to get paid that is coercive that is a mandatory right. captive audience meeting. And, and by the way, these people who are forcing you into this meeting have the authority to fire you. Right. To terminate your employment uh, and to leave you out on the street 
So what they are, what the, what this proposal that they're, that they're talking about, that's going to muzzle bosses. So, so, so sad for the bosses. What, what it's talking about is just that you cannot coerce your employees into listening to you if they don't want to listen to you. That's it. That's it. You still have all the opportunities and, and more, frankly, as a union organizer or as your coworker, because union organizers, coworkers, if they want to talk to a worker at a workplace that they're trying to organize, they have to find them and get the worker without coercion, without threat of losing their pay for that shift. Mm -hmm. They have to get them to voluntarily listen to their spiel, right? So if a boss wants to take some time off the clock and the employee is willing and is not being coerced, nobody is stopping that from happening. Absolutely. Nobody is proposing. Let them organize like working right. people have to organize. Let the boss organize like working people have to organize, which is off the clock or in snippets as you can get to it through the day. And you can't you you can't have these captive audience meetings. That's it. That's it. It's leveling the playing field, which these Republicans are supposed to be like, oh, you know, we just want a fair playing field. That's all this does. And the idea that making bosses, yeah, removing this coercive authority, this coercive ability that they have, muzzles them is absurd. They're lying to you if the, the people on this committee... The, maybe the Republicans don't know because Republican politicians can be stupid and Democrat politicians can be stupid. But the boss, he knows exactly. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's lying to you. He's lying to you that this would muzzle the bosses. It would give them the exact same opportunity that workers have to talk about their opinions on unionization. And really still have an advantage because at the end of the day... Um, it's a, it's a relationship of hierarchy, right? Right. The employees have to report to the employer. The employer has control over paycheck and benefits. Right. So <clears throat> even in this circumstance, the employer is always going to have a leg up because of, you know, the vertical relationship right. of labor to capital there. Um, that's just the way it is. And, you know, something, uh, in the chat, Hustler mentioned about, you know, them, them threatening to close stores. And it's the con the substance in these meetings, too. Right. Uh, so not only are you being coerced into the, the meetings, uh, the meetings are often full of more threats. Right. Uh, we might have to close the store if you vote yes. We uh, would love to give you more benefits, but not if you go union. Right. Um, and then, of course, you you watch and see where some of your coworkers are being targeted for discipline for speaking out. Uh, you hear about the organizer across town who got fired, who mm -hmm. was on the organizing committee, and so on. Um, so that's the the quote unquote choice that Republicans want you to have. Right, and that's you talked about. You know the the existence of these meetings in and of themselves is an issue because they are coercive by their very nature. Mm -hmm. But also the substance of the meetings can be coercive as well. And Representative Jayapal gave Eisen the chance to talk about the substance of these meetings during the hearing. Adam, let's play that clip where Eisen responds to Jayapal. 
I wanted to just give Ms. Eisen a, a chance to respond to what we just heard um, in terms of employees wanting to hear from the company. Uh, it sounds really good, but tell us about what a captive audience meeting is like, actually. Ms. Eisen, do you feel like you get a chance to hear from the company in sort of a neutral way, or um, how would you describe that? My apologies. I can say from my own experience in um, captive audience meetings held by Starbucks during our organizing campaign, um, they are far from impartial. You are not hearing both sides of the story. You are hearing one side. Um, we were brought to hotel conference rooms located far from our store. Uh, most Starbucks workers had to find transportation because we are a city store that um, most of our workers don't, don't drive. That wasn't offered to them. They had to find a way to get to these. Then we had to sit in a room uh, with high-ranking members of corporate as far up as um, the president of Star Starbucks North America, whom we had only just met, um, where we were talked at for nearly an hour um, about why we should feel ashamed of asking for more from a company that had already given us so much. Um, but they were only giving us the facts. They were giving us the facts about what the company was, what the company wanted. They wanted us to vote no. Um, they were um, there to take care of everything. They were gonna make sure that any grievance we had was handled. Um, and if we needed facts from the union, we needed to contact a union organizer. And when presented with the fact that the union organizers, as far as the Starbucks campaign, were Starbucks workers, some of whom were sitting in that room with them, that is not something that they wanted to hear. Um, they didn't want to be presented with the fact that it wasn't a third party, there wasn't some big union boss out there corralling these workers and uh, convincing them that this was their best interest. It was the workers making that decision for themselves. Um, but we were not given the same time or opportunity to speak in that room to our coworkers about why we felt this was a better option for us. Um, and, and, you know, I think with that, you can see why I think that Michelle was, was one of the standout. Uh, yeah, people in this here. Absolutely. I mean, really, really. Whereas you've got these other people speaking in hypotheticals, they're not really la they're not laying out concretely what's going to happen. She's been there from mm -hmm. ground zero. Yeah. Uh, so just a really fantastic, uh, a fantastic description of the reality of of what these meetings are like. Um, and and you know you got some of the some of the substance of that, but also the existence of it being coercive, and and you know, the idea that they would have these captive audience meetings and not provide transportation for the people to get there—that's just insane to me. Why? <laughs> like, talk about getting off on the wrong foot. Um, really, really uh, great stuff from Ison. Terrible stuff from the bosses. Uh, and. Adam, if you don't have any more on that, then we can play well, her opening statement. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do that. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Fox, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. My name is Michelle Eisen, and I am a barista at the Starbucks on Elmwood Avenue in Buffalo, New York, the first Starbucks to unionize. I began my career with Starbucks in 2010. I needed a part-time job that would provide me with health benefits and also complement my other career as a theatrical stage manager. Starbucks offered both of those things. 
as well as the opportunity to work for a company that had a reputation of being progressive, caring about its communities, and most importantly, taking care of its employees. And for a time, I felt that to be true. Unfortunately, over the last several years, things began to shift within the company. The cost of the benefits increased while the coverage decreased and wages did not keep up. Other benefits were completely taken away without warning or explanation. But the clearest difference was the overall decline in the everyday working conditions on the floors of the cafes. This decline became drastic during the COVID-19 pandemic, when Starbucks boasted record profits, but simply treated us, its workers, as disposable. This nearly led to me leaving a company I had devoted over a decade of my life to. But instead, I was presented with the opportunity to try to unionize my store. The company's response to our organizing campaign was not at all what I expected. I realize now how naive that was, but I truly believe that Starbucks was at heart the progressive company it proclaimed itself to be. We were simply expressing our desire for reasonable improvements to our working conditions, particularly when it came to our health and safety. And the only way to accomplish this was to make sure we had a true voice in the company policies that affected us. Within two weeks of filing our first petitions with the NLRB, the company shut down two stores it perceived had strong union support, one permanently and the other for months. They also quickly shipped in over 100 out-of-town managers and upper-level corporate to infiltrate our cafes, surveil and intimidate workers, and shut down our stores in order to hold anti-union meetings, which workers needed to attend in order to get paid. They went from offering us the world, if we voted no, to threatening to take away our benefits if we voted to unionize. And when that didn't work and we won our union anyway, they began to discipline us, then fire us, then permanently close our stores. And as our campaign moved from Buffalo to a national scale, so did Starbucks union busting. And that behavior has only increased tenfold since the return of Howard Schultz as interim CEO in April of this year. Starbucks has fired over 100 union leaders and supporters to date, many just in the previous weeks. Starbucks has no regard for our legal rights and they will never stop on their own. In the last year, the union has filed over 350 unfair labor practice charges against Starbucks with the NLRB. The NLRB has so far issued administrative complaints against Starbucks in almost 100 ULPs alleging over 600 legal violations. Some of these alleged violations affected every Starbucks worker in the country. And Starbucks workers are not alone in this struggle. Workers involved in, ever, in other large organizing efforts at places such as Amazon, Chipotle, Trader Joe's, and Apple have faced very similar union busting from their companies. But despite this overwhelmingly negative response from Starbucks, we find ourselves at the forefront of a new labor movement. Over 6,300 Starbucks workers have unionized at over 237 locations across the U.S. so far. But these victories are due entirely to the courage of these workers in the face of this abusive conduct by the company. It should not take an act of bravery to assure, ensure that you have a voice at work. We need Starbucks to recognize our desire to organize, which the NLRA explicitly states is our right. We need Starbucks to stop mistreating the workers it claims to care about and to fill, fulfill its legal obligation to come to the table and negotiate with us in good faith. We are tired of fighting a company that can afford to do better by its hourly workers. We are tired of listening to billionaire CEOs take sole credit for the billions of dollars of profit made off our labor. 
We are tired of watching Starbucks continue to violate workers' rights, knowing that the law will fail to offer any meaningful consequences. But most of all, we are tired of fighting Howard Schultz's ego. We need people in power to call Starbucks out for this repulsive behavior because worker rights are human rights. We need labor law reform like the PRO Act so that the laws work to protect the people they were put in place for. We need better funding for the NLRB so that the agency has the resources it needs to enforce the law. We need you to stand with us as the American labor movement does what it always has. Fight for a future that is just and works for all of us. Thank you. I look forward to taking your questions. Great opening statement. Yeah. Yeah, really good stuff from Eisen. Um, any, anything else about that? No, I think she said it all. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, it's important that she was there and I'm thankful that she was there to testify and actually have a worker voice heard in Congress because that is so rare. And as you pointed out, uh, she was the only worker, actual mm -hmm. worker that was there to testify. Uh, so based on what you shared with me and of course what we listened to this morning, it seems like the Democrats certainly could have done more with this hearing and done a better job with it. Uh, but, you know, regardless, I think it's positive that there was such a congressional hearing on union busting. That's yeah. a step in the right direction. And I hope that it leads to a lot more uh, because, as Michelle pointed out, companies like Starbucks are going to keep doing this if they can get away with it. Yeah. If they can get away with it, they're going to keep doing it. Right. And so we need a little bit of law and order when it comes to labor relations. Law and order uh, unionism. The, the, you know, the law is not on our side, but to the extent that laws have been won through our sacrifice that are meant to protect us, we need them enforced. Yeah. Uh, and before we get off of Starbucks, I wanted to give you all this update really quick that just came out as we were talking, I think. Um, the update to the South Carolina Starbucks workers being accused of kidnapping. That's right. I remember that. By their report, uh, by their store manager. Right. They had a march to the boss, right? Yeah, they had and a march on the boss. The boss called they the cops. Surrounded, uh, they, they surrounded the boss, read off their list of the demands. The boss asked if she could leave, and then she left. She was permitted to leave, and then she accused them of kidnapping. She filed a police report. The update is that the Starbucks workers, this is More Perfect Union, um, uh, at More Perfect US on Twitter. Starbucks workers in South Carolina were falsely accused of kidnap and assault by their manager after they presented a list of workplace demands a sheriff's investigation confirms. In fact, a sheriff's representative said the manager was the only one to initiate physical contact. Mm. Quote, from this is the sheriff's representative quote after talking with all the employees and seeing the tiktok video that an employee posted from the event none of the allegations were true the employees did not stop her from leaving and did not put their hands on her which is what the boss reported had happened she is the one who initiated any kind of contact when she pushed past one of the employees as she was walking out the door. Imagine that. Boss is lying. 
More Perfect Union said the incident went viral and Starbucks used the story to attack the union. The company suspended 11 workers from the store and Starbucks promised that the workers would be paid while suspended. They fired six workers over Labor Day weekend, stiffing them on more than two weeks pay. Really, really amazing stuff. Starbucks management has refused to speak with the workers since August 4th. One fired union leader, Anil Tripathi, issued a statement about the firing, police statement, and wage theft to More Perfect Union. And I'll read that here. Quote, we are thrilled to hear that the Anderson Police Department saw the absurdity of these kidnapping and assault charges put onto our partners for simply asking for the benefits that Starbucks promised non-union stores and illegally did not give to union Union stores. The Anderson Police Department agreed that we did not block the door and our uh, store manager was the one who initiated contact with one of our baristas. While we are optimistic about this news, Starbucks is hiding the fact that they have not paid us. At the beginning of our suspension, Partner Resources told us that we would be paid. However, now they are telling us that is not the case. Our store manager and district manager ignore our phone calls while our district manager updates our district's Instagram page and blocks those who were illegally terminated but will not call partners back regarding not getting paid. Oh, wow. They got the receipts. She's on Instagram. Mm. She's on Instagram. Can't, can't return a call from the workers who were promised pay. Insane. Insane stuff. And but you know, Republicans this... are going to say, oh, they had a free choice. Everything's right. everything's right. on the up and up, right? Yeah, and this is something that we talked about, something that I mentioned when we first covered this story, is that, you know, like, this is on a whole nother level from some of the other stuff that mm. we're talking about. We're talking about potential criminal charges. I mean, actual... Life ruining. Yeah, actual criminal charges were filed. Um, and they were dismissed by the cops, but actual criminal charges were filed. We're not even talking about potentially losing your job and potentially becoming homeless. We're talking about potential jail time that this store manager tried to inflict upon these baristas. And obviously, neither Adam nor myself are, you know, carceral type proponents, generally speaking. Uh, but, you know, uh, the idea that there are no consequences for trying to put somebody in jail knowing that you are lying. Yeah. The idea that there are even no professional consequences because apparently the district manager and the store manager are still running the, the store's Instagram. Right, which is a reflection of Starbucks values. The idea that there's not even a, any professional there's not even any professional repercussions for trying to uh, uh, unrightfully throw people in prison is astounding. That's astounding. Yeah. I think people who file frivolous police reports and false police reports are, you know, a special type of, of messed up. Um you know, we talked about it last week when I reported on Angela McClure, the yeah. local school board crazy, or local crazy trying to be on the school board, uh, who filed a bogus police report on her opponent, saying that she committed theft over some political yard signs, which she didn't even have proof that, that, that they were stolen. Uh, but, you know, the police had to investigate this. And it's, it's sad when you're, like, having to 
trust that the police are going to see through right. nonsense. Right. I mean, we, we've done a lot of reporting on this show. And, of course, people a lot more connected and smarter than us are doing a lot of great work exposing criminal injustice in our system and the misconduct by police. So that is just such a dangerous thing to, to file <laughs> to file these reports on people Seriously. and try to get them thrown in jail. Um, you know, thank God that they saw through this and those workers are going to be okay in terms of legal consequences. But that is just really messed up. And, and like I said, I think it's a reflection of Starbucks values. If this person is still in management, um, yeah, you know, I, I just, I, to me, that seems like you're condoning that kind of conduct and it makes Absolutely. me worry. Are we going to see this again? Is this going to become a right, new Right, because tactic? imagine if they hadn't had that TikTok video. Right. And what if the store cameras had magically turned off? Right, or, you know. And maybe you had two people in management that were willing to both lie. And you got two witness testimonies saying that, oh, yeah, no, they did do this. Right. It's, I mean, it could, be, it could be a very dangerous situation, yeah. Um. We've got one more segment if anybody wants to call in and talk to us after this segment is over. 844-899-8857. Otherwise, we'll be wrapping up after this. Uh, and so we began the show with something that's a little more a little more frivolous, a little more fun. And we're going to do end the show in overtime the same way. We've got this clip from Newsmax about Labor Day. It is about Labor Day, so it's a couple of weeks old. But it's very fun, so I wanted to get to it. Um, and, uh, the well... Let's just let's just play it. Let's just play it. Let's just play the clip. <laughs> that, that right, right there, there shows you exactly what they represent. represent. Communism, socialism, labor unionizing to wield power over employees and employers. I mean, just look at the roots of May Day, also known as Labor Day. In 1889, May 1st was designated May Day, a day in support of workers by an international federation of socialist groups and trade unions in commemoration of the Haymarket Affair, a violent confrontation that took place on May 4th, 1886 in Chicago. But here in America, labor unions who operated much like socialism wanted their day of recognition, but in an effort to hide the obvious payoff to big labor, the powers that be or were decided to hide the corrupt union extortion by making the day off from work the first day in September, not May 1st, a work holiday now known as Labor Day. So yeah, Tucker took the day off to celebrate the labor unions, their corrupt history and their mafia crime family origins. And yeah, he's replaying some old, stale old interviews, but I thought we should be here for you with a brand new show. If you're a regular viewer of The Balance, I'm glad you're here with me. Makes it all worthwhile. And if you're a new viewer, a Tucker viewer maybe, you're always welcome here. We hope you stay. So how about a little history lesson for the Tuckers and the rest of the communist sympathizers who celebrate Labor Day by taking their news shows off? Tucker and the rest of the communist sympathizers who celebrate Labor Day, folks. That's, That's all. You heard it here. That's all it takes to be a communist sympathizer. If you took the day off on Labor Day... <laughs> Welcome, you, welcome if, to the movement. We are glad to have you. If, if you You'll get did, your red card in the mail. If you did not drop to your knees on Labor Day and perform fellatio for your boss, then you're a commie. Man. Some folks miss the memo, but if only Jeez, you were a dude. regular listener to Newsmax, you would know the truth. 
<laughs> I mean, it's pretty funny because he, he talks about, he does go into... I appreciate him at least you know, uh, letting his listeners know about May Day. Perhaps yeah, they were unaware. And now they know that the real Labor Day is on May Day. Right. Uh, but the, you know, so he tracks that, you know, the American Labor Day is strangely in September instead of on May 1st when the rest of the world celebrates Labor Day. Um, but he does it as if the powers that be were like... Doing a solid for us labor people. By doing, doing a that. solid for the commies. Like, yeah. I love I love communism so much. So we're definitely going to do a Labor Day, but we've got to hide it from... Somebody good, hardworking, honest yeah. American folks. I mean, these are the people in power. Who are they going to hide it from if they're like these big commies? But so they're going to do commie Labor Day in September to celebrate the commies, but they're hiding it from somebody. Yeah, you can't be too flagrant with your communist sympathies, right? Yeah, um, I don't know. That was. Uh, when uh, you know, actually, for the, the the reality of the history is that the conserv, you know, May Day does have there are you know left wing socialist anarchist type of roots in oh, absolutely. May Day. That's, that is true. God and truth. the these May Day celebrations sprang up organically, and so the conservative elements of the labor movement in the American Federation of Labor along with conservative elements in the government, wanted to move this energy to having a day off to celebrate Labor Day, to cleave it from our history, mm -hmm. cleave it from the more radical elements of our history, and turn it into this patriotic American Labor Day. Right. Fly I mean, your just, flag, drink your beer, right. grill your burger. I mean, literally, all you have to do is, is read... What the president of the American Federation of Labor was saying about the reasons that they were doing this at the time, instead of the, the they won, it was explicitly to kick out the commies so that people would not understand that there's a, that you are part of a radical lineage if you are in the labor movement, um, and that this radical lineage is what has gotten you. So much of the things that it, it is such a driving force in labor. They wanted people not to understand that because they were they were not part of that radical lineage. Um, yeah, I think that's been a longstanding theme in American history is to obscure radicalism where it has existed organically and then to portray non-radical elements as radicals to try to discredit them. Right. So someone who is on the far right like Tucker Carlson, you can kind of glibly say is a communist sympathizer. Um, and, and, you know, they'll make out Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden as if they are communist sympathizers or, or perhaps even communists themselves while obscuring the real tradition, the real radical tradition we have in this country of people who did come out of communist and anarchist and socialist traditions uh, but who are nonetheless, or perhaps because of that, um, tremendous heroes in mm -hmm. our history. People like Helen Keller, people like Martin Luther King Jr., people like Albert Einstein, um, and, and the list goes on of people who, you know, whose radical histories have been obscured so that they could be sanitized. But, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty hilarious that 
<laughs> if you took Labor Day off, that's somehow um, synonymous with, with communist sympathies. If only communists were as strong as they are in the imagination of people like that guy, mm. uh, we might have quite the different country. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, but something you said that we need to talk about at some point, I think, in, in future shows is is the amount of purges that have taken place within mm. the labor movement to purge those who are radical, those who are, who are on the left. Um, it's something that's been ongoing since really the beginning of American labor movement, and it has never stopped. The Red Scare did not go away. Um, you know, there have been a couple of waves with the Red Scare, and it never fully disappeared from, from the ether. It just sort of mostly won. Right. Um, they kicked out all the radicals time after time, you know. We saw what happened with the IWW after the height of its success. We, we saw uh, the purges in the 50s um, during the McCarthy era, and it has continued. Um, you know, the idea that there's just all these communist sympathizers running around uh, big labor Okay, uh, that tells me how much you don't know about communist or big labor, <laughs> frankly, right. uh, because um, try walking into an AFL-CIO meeting proudly proclaiming your communism and see how far you get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I mean, and, you know, so there's, there is a serious discussion to be had there about the way radicals pushed the labor movement to be stronger. They were the intellectuals. They were the soldiers um, of labor and much of the success that we had in this country for labor and from labor, we owe that to our radical forefathers and foremothers. Yeah. Um, and that is one of the reasons I would argue that labor has been in decline for so many decades is because you took out the best and the brightest and the most dedicated, the most dedicated, the most intellectual, um, the most thoughtful, you took those people out. And so, of course, material conditions are, you know, the primary thing there when we're looking at neoliberalism and globalization and, and so on. Um, but that those things happened to a labor movement that had been neutered, more right. or less, by its purges of its radical flanks. Um, was absolutely a factor, and that's something that uh, Stanley Aronowitz writes wrote about. Um, and it's something, yeah, maybe we can we can explore in future episodes. Yep. All right, folks, that's going to be it for us this week. We appreciate you hanging out. If you want to leave us a voicemail, ask us a question, we might answer it on the next show. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. I had a couple plugs I wanted to throw out there before we totally wrap up today. All right. Um, just want to remind folks about Labor Notes Alabama Troublemaker School on Saturday, October 15th. I know we've been plugging it a lot. Want to plug it some more. We want to see as many folks come out as possible. If you can't attend, that's okay. You can still get online and share the event on Facebook. You can invite your friends to the event on Facebook. You can forward the emails to friends on your email list. Uh, there are things you can do to support the attendance at that event, even if you personally can't attend. Um, and if you're listening to this show, then I'm going to assume that you you agree that rebuilding the labor movement in the South is, is incredibly important for all of us working people. So 
wanted to make sure I plugged that again. Don't forget, again, the city of Huntsville has its runoff election Tuesday, September 20th. Uh, it's very important that thinking people show up to the polls Tuesday. Mm. Uh, it's going to be incredibly low turnout. I would be shocked if it's above 10%. I really would be shocked if it's above 10%. Um, so if you live in District 2, you have a city council race. Um, I Word on the street is, you know, progressives are probably leaning towards David Little over Bill Yell. Uh, more so against Bill Yell and for David Little. But that's, you know, what, what I've heard from folks who live in that district. Dale Jackson endorsed Bill Yell for what it's worth and had Bill Yell on his program okay, this so week there you go. talking about how Bill Yell is the conservative choice. So, yeah, he's leaned into that. Um, he's leaned into being the conservative choice. So, you know, not that I, um, I'm not endorsing David Little by any means. I don't even know a, a ton about the guy. Uh, but if you live in City, district two, uh, city of Huntsville District 2, would strongly encourage you to show up to the polls and keep in mind that all the right-wing folks are lining up behind Bill Yell. And of course, we've we've covered quite a bit. District 3 School Board, Angela McClure is a total right-wing crank. Um, check out my deep dive segment on her from last week. Check out the full interview with Andrea Alvarez uh, from last month. She's just like a normal mom who's actually involved in her kids' lives and education and wants to see the school system get better uh, versus someone who clearly watches too much Newsmax. Um, uh, we mentioned the Alabama Arise meeting. Uh, if you're not a member of Alabama Arise, I do encourage you to join up. They're a great organization. They do great work. Uh, Energy Alabama just had their meetup this week. I hope it went well. We appreciate Energy Alabama. and. Um, Let's see, last thing I was going to mention, uh, Kyle Whitmire has a new op-ed out. And, you know, I'm not always in love with Kyle Whitmire's uh, positions or his writing. Uh, he is a Pulitzer Prize winner, and uh, he has done some, some good work with AL.com. And there's a very interesting op-ed he put out this week about the chair of the state Alabama mm -hmm. Republican Party. I saw that. That was fascinating. Um who somehow is unwilling, unable, some combination, uh, unwilling, unable to comply with voter ID laws uh, that his party has really spearheaded and implemented in the state. That's very interesting. Um, that whole Wall family and their butterfly farm in Limestone County and their domination of, of Republican politics, I think there's probably a lot more there than Whitmire even gets at in that op-ed. There's probably a lot more to be uncovered there. Uh, they give me the creeps. Um, mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't say that since I'm going to try to be a poll worker in Limestone County. I guess my <laughs> application just got rejected. But um, do recommend you check out that op-ed. And um, yeah, a oh, final plug would be if you're not following Real News Network, uh, really encourage you to do that. As we've mentioned several times, Max Alvarez, Mel Buer, Mel Buer, who has actually been on this show to talk about the railroads, that she was on, what, like a month or two mm -hmm. ago? Nice of lamestream media catching up with the Valley Labor Report yeah, on their right. reporting. Uh, but yeah, they, um, they've been doing great work, and they actually talk to workers, uh, which is something that the corporate media 
is unable and unwilling to do. Yep. So that's all I have. Um, hoping maybe next week we can get into the Mississippi welfare fraud scandal. Mm. Uh, there's a lot there, and um, as a fan of Southern Miss football and as someone who grew up with Brett Favre as my favorite football player, it's been a uh, really interesting scandal to watch. It's starting to get some national attention now uh, with everything happening in Jackson with the water crisis. So, yeah, there's just a lot going on here in the South. Uh, appreciate everyone who's tuned in. Appreciate everyone who liked and shared and uh, really just just keep your support coming. You're the reason why we do the show. See you next week.